Today's sermon comes from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Last summer, NPR reported on a visitor to a Bank of America in Corpus Christi, Texas, who had a rather rough afternoon. Uh, He was a contractor who was putting a a lock on an ATM, and it was the bank's uh, ATM in their their service room. So he opens it up, and he goes in, and uh, when he gets in there, the the ATM big door closes behind him, and it wouldn't open back up. And he had left his phone in his truck, and uh, he couldn't yell loud enough or speak intelligibly enough to let people know or whoever that the that he was stuck inside this ATM. And of course, when the door closed, it was still a fully functioning ATM. And so people were coming up to get money out and do their transactions at the ATM. Uh, So he didn't have a phone, and he couldn't yell loud enough or intelligibly enough through the machine, but he had a pen and he had some paper. So when he could tell that someone was up using the ATM, he'd write, he'd, you know, write a note and he'd slip it out through the place where you get your receipt. And uh, one of the notes said this, please help, I'm stuck in here and I don't have my phone, please call my boss. And everybody thought it was a prank. So they just walked away. Well, finally somebody realized maybe there's something going on here. So they called the police and uh, the police showed up. They initially thought it was a prank. um, And eventually they realized, no, there's a man stuck in here. Uh, So he was eventually freed, set free from this ATM. But isn't that often sometimes how we feel in life when trouble hits? Trouble hits and we're sending out these subtle cries for help and there's no answer. Or we are, we're, we're praying and we feel like our prayers are just hitting the ceiling. We feel like God is distant. We feel like maybe he's disinterested. Maybe he's just kind of pulled away to watch us languish in the trouble we're facing. It begs the question because trouble is something everyone goes through. What is the nature of God's help in the midst of trouble? When we feel trapped, when we feel full of despair, when we can't see our way out of whatever situation we find ourselves in, what's the nature of God's help in the midst of trouble? And this psalm gives a beautiful answer. Now, before we look specifically at at the nature of God's help, we're going to start with counterfeit help because that's where the psalm starts. You look at verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, what is the meaning of the hills? 
Well, at the time that this psalm was written, Palestine, that area, that region was overrun with pagan worship, with, with worship of false gods. And all of those places where that worship happened were on the tops of hills. They set up these religious places of worship on the hilltops. The, the Old Testament calls it the high places. And any time that Israel experienced some sort of revival, it always involved repentance and that repentance involved tearing down all these, these Asherah poles and these places of worship. I'll give you an example. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, it says, King Hezekiah removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. You know, they would make Asherah poles, which was just basically a pole. It was a sacred pole. They'd stick on one of these hills to honor the false god Asherah. And what you had was uh, on these hills, all of these offers of help. So when you found yourself in trouble, you would go to the hills to get help. If you, if you were, had, had crops and you're in the midst of a drought and there hadn't been rain, you would go to the hills and you would offer a sacrifice to the rain God to, to get the rain God to bless you and, and, and pour out rain on your crops. Uh, verse 6 of Psalm 121 talks about the sun and the moon and the perils of the sun and the moon. Well, in the Middle East, the sun is a real danger. You can die from it, of the intense heat. So if you found yourself on a long journey or out and you, and you felt the danger of the sun, you, you'd go to the hills, to the sun priest, and you would you'd basically buy protection against the sun god or the moon. What was the deal with the moon? Well, they and, and this floats around a little bit today. Uh, but especially a full moon, was thought to make people crazy. It was thought to give you a mental illness. So if you wanted you know, uh, to be healed from that or protection against that, you'd go to the hills, you'd go to the moon priestess, and you'd buy a little piece of jewelry to protect you. Now, you say, that's just weird. That's strange. Not too strange. It, there's examples of that today. I'll give you one. You want to sell your house fast? You go buy a St. Joseph statue and you bury it in your front yard. And if you do that, somehow you're going to wake up the real estate God and you're going to sell your house fast. And all you have to do is go to the hills of walmart.com. And there is one for $7.54 with free shipping for you to bury in your front yard. See, 2,500 years ago when this psalm was written, people were facing trouble. That's no different. There was a trinket you could buy there was a sacrifice to be made. There was some sort of superstitious rigmarole you would go through and you'd find your help. 2,500 years later, right, the human heart responds the same way. Now, the offers of help and the hills might look a little bit different depending on the culture you live in. If you live in an Eastern culture, the offer of the hills is going to look very supernatural and very superstitious and very spiritual. If you live in Western culture like we do, it's going to look more natural than supernatural. Give your body away to this person and your loneliness and your self-esteem issues will disappear. Get this promotion at work and you will feel like you're worth something. Consume this substance, this drink, this drug and all your pain will go away. 
you realize it's the same thing. In those examples I've given, it's turning work into a God and trying to satisfy and, and appease that God so that God will bless you. It's turning a person into a God and trying to satisfy and appease that God so it'll bless you. It's turning a substance into a God and trying to satisfy and appease that God to bless you. The offer of the hills is, it's empty because ultimately they're full of lies. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah says it this way in, in Jeremiah 3.23, truly the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains, and that's referring to pagan prostitution that was rampant. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So we turn our attention from counterfeit help, the offer of the hills, to the real help, to the real God. And that's, that's the first, when we talk about the nature of God's help in the midst of trouble, the very top is the, is the, the reality that God's help is real. Look at verses uh, two to three. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And then verse four, he will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, where does this slumber and sleep language come from? As if we have to wake God up. Well, it comes from this story in 1 Kings chapter 18. And it's this battle between the, uh, Elijah, the prophet of God, and the prophets of Baal. And they each sacrificed a bull and they would lay it on their wood altar. And they would each call out to their, their God, Elijah to Yahweh, and then the, the prophets of Baal would call out to Baal. And the deal was, whoever's God answered with fire was the true and living God. So the prophets of Baal start first. And it says they cry out from morning till noon to get Baal to answer them and send fire. And he doesn't. Nothing happens. We pick up in verse 27 of 1 King 18. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So they start to cry out louder. And it says they start to cut themselves with swords and lances and the gushes, the blood is starting to gush. And you say, that's graphic. And it is, but it's a, it, is an, it is a spot on picture of the length to which we will go to get help from the hills. abusing our body with drugs and alcohol to get some sort of help in our time of need, right? Developing heart problems over stress because we're giving ourselves to this work God, just hoping to feel like we're worth something when we get that promotion, right? Giving our bodies away, it's the same thing in an attempt to get this counterfeit God to give us the help that we're longing for. At the end of this account with the prophets of Baal, Baal still doesn't answer. And the, the, the end of it in verse 29 is it's stark and it's grim. It says this, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then the story turns to Elijah. 
So Elijah puts the, the bull on the, the, the uh, altar of wood, douses the altar with water, and then starts crying out and praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what does God do? Verses 38, 39. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. See, God doesn't sleep or slumber. You don't have to wake him up. You don't have to shout and scream and do dances and perform and run through some sort of superstitious rigmarole to get him to answer. That's not how God works. That God's the true and living God. He's omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. That means nothing surprises him. He's, not, he's omnipresent, which means he's present everywhere all the time by his Holy Spirit. Not like a school teacher that's helping a student with no idea what the student behind him is doing. God's omnipresent. He's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. And that's why the psalmist in verse 2 reminds us this is the God, the real God who what? Made heaven and earth. He's the all-powerful creator who offers real help. So what's the nature of God's help in the midst of trouble? Number one, he's real. It's real help. Real, true, living help set against the counterfeit gods that we tend to run to. Second, he gives personal help. Look at verses five and six. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, this is an astounding couple of verses. Why? Because the you and the your there are singular. Look at the progression. The God who made heaven and earth, the creator, is the same God who keeps Israel, is the same God who keeps you, singular. The God who, who keeps this world of 7.6 billion people is the same God who keeps the new Israel, the church around the globe is the same God who keeps watch over you personally. There's emphasis in this psalm. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in his book, A, a Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is a great book that goes through the Psalms of Ascent. He says this, but we can't believe that God condescends to watch the soap opera of our daily trials and tribulations. So we purchase our own remedies for that. To ask him to deal with what troubles us each day, listen to this, is like asking a famous surgeon to put iodine on a scratch. But the God of Genesis 1, who brought light out of darkness, is also the God of this day who guards you from every evil. And Jesus picks up on this in Matthew chapter 10. He tells his disciples, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. You're going to face danger. You're going to face death. 
You're gonna face hardship. You're gonna face trouble. But don't be, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. You say, why? Verses 29 to 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. It's God's intimate, detailed, personal care of your life that drives out fear and anxiety. Back in 2003, Washington, D.C. meteorologists were tracking Hurricane Isabel, massive hurricane that was barreling up the Atlantic and it was headed for the nation's capital. And sure enough, it did. It went straight towards the nation's capital. And so on September 18th, all the federal government offices shut down. Uh, the metro subway shut down. Most of Congress left. All the museums and, the, and, and all of that was, it was a ghost town in D.C. Except for one place. The Tomb of the Unknowns in the Arlington National Seminary, Cemetery. That, that's the Tomb of the Unknowns where they honor unidentified fallen soldiers. Since 1948, there has been soldiers that have rotated on and off in since 1948, guarded that tomb. And they gave, not really orders, but they said to those soldiers, you have permission to leave your post. Would have been the first time since 1948. And listen to how one of them replied. This is Sergeant Holmes. Yeah, they told us that, but that's not what's gonna happen. That's not what's gonna happen. It's just considered to be the greatest honor to go out there and guard. It's not only the unknowns. It's a symbol that represents everyone who's fought and died for our country. And then the, the soldier that was gonna stand vigil that night as this hurricane barreled through said that's never an option for us. It went in one ear and right out the other. And so during the height of the storm, at that point it was like 60 mile an hour winds. It was trees were falling in the cemetery. Headstones were being crushed. There was a soldier for five and a half hours that was guarding that tomb. Didn't leave his post. Six times in Psalm 121, God is called the keeper or the one who keeps you. He doesn't leave his post. And his intimate care of your life does not wax and wane based on your spiritual temperature. He doesn't get disgusted with your meandering obedience and decide that he's gonna let you fend for yourself for a time. No, he keeps watch. He guards, he intimately cares for your life through every possible trouble and trial that you could face. That his care for you is that personal. What is the nature of God's help in the midst of trouble? It's real, it's personal. It's real and it's personal. Now here's the, the question that it, it's gonna bear and we're gonna get to it as we get to the, the last point. That his, 
His, his care is not just real, not just personal, but it's eternal. It's eternal. When evil touches your life, see, it's great to talk about God's constant care and God's um, intimate care, but when evil touches your life, it begs the question, did God abandon his post for a bit? Did God abandon his post for a bit when that, whatever it is, entered my life? And that brings us to this last point that his care is real, it's personal, but it's eternal. Look at verse seven. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now, what does this mean? He will keep you from all evil. Does it mean that he'll never let evil touch your life? Does it mean you'll never get cancer? Does it mean that you'll never be mugged or assaulted? Or does it mean that you'll never get in a serious car accident? Or does it, does it mean that you'll never be laid off at work, maybe unjustly? No, what the Psalm promises is this, that no injury, no accident, no act of evil will ever have evil power over you, meaning it will never separate you from God's purposes in your life. It can never get between you and God or divert his will away from you. That's what Romans 8.28 says. That for all those who love God, in all things he will work together good according to his purposes. So the promise of Psalm 121 is not that, that the presence of evil will never touch you. Although, there are plenty of times where that happens that we don't even realize it. The number of times that God has even kept the presence of evil from us. But that's not the promise of the psalm. The promise is that the presence of evil may touch you, but the purpose of evil will never get into you. See, the purpose of evil is to destroy you. It's to destroy your relationship with, with Jesus. It's to destroy the church. And God makes the promise that that will never happen to those who are in Christ, to those that love him. The greatest example of this is the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. The, the forces of evil were unleashed on Jesus. The Romans, the Jews were calling for his crucifixion. It was the greatest act of injustice that we ever have known in our world. A perfectly innocent man was unfairly tried brutally beaten and crucified. The presence of evil touched Jesus. But the purpose of evil had no way with Jesus because God used evil to accomplish his good, which is the salvation of his people. And so when we speak about God or this Psalm speaks about God keeping you from all evil, that's what it means. It doesn't keep you from the presence of evil necessarily. It keeps you from the purpose of evil, destroying your life. That's what God is promising in this psalm. And so if the purpose of evil can't touch you and God uses the presence of evil to accomplish his purposes in you, what are his purposes? Look at verse eight. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in 
from this time forth and forevermore. God helps you with eternity in view. That the good of Romans 8 that God is working towards is not your present comfort necessarily. It's you being conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. You becoming more and more like the one who you will be like in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. That's God's, he has the end in mind, eternity in mind. And so everything he's doing purpose-wise, even if he allows evil in, is to conform you, shape you towards that end. That the presence of evil may touch you, but the purpose of evil can never touch you. That God's purpose of conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ will always, always, always prevail. Think about when a controlled burn is set off in a forest. Think about that. What do they do? They set the ground cover on fire and it burns until it burns out. And what's left? It's a scorched and burned earth. Why? Why do they do that? Well, it's certainly not for immediate beauty. It's certainly not for immediate beauty. But controlled burns stimulate the germination of many of the forest trees. It increases the vitality of the seeding so that the forest is renewed. Even though that renewal is not immediately evident. And so sometimes God lets a fire start in your life. The presence of evil in some form or fashion touches you. And sometimes it feels like when that fire burns, you're left scorched and burnt. But the promise, the promise of God is that he is shaping you and conforming you and preparing you for an eternity of being like Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. That that's the promise of God and his purpose will always prevail. The purpose of evil will never prevail in your life. That's the promise of Psalm 121. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep you from the purpose of evil and God's purpose will always prevail. Dallas Willard lost his mom as a young child. And so he writes about this young boy who lost his mom when he was young. And this boy, after he lost his mom, was particularly sad and lonely at night. And so this boy would go into his father's room and he'd say, Father, can I sleep with you tonight? His dad would say, sure, and he'd climb up in bed. But this little boy, just the, the, the presence of his father or the witness of his father wasn't enough. He needed to know that his, in the dark that his father's face was turned towards him. Say, Father, is your face turned toward me now? Yes, his father would say. You are not alone. I'm with you. My face is turned toward you. God's face, your father, is always turned toward you because he turned away from his own son, Jesus Christ. And you can be assured through thick or thin, through the most agonizing trouble, the most agonizing pain, that the Father's face is turned towards you 
And your evidence of that is that he turned away from his son and therefore will never turn away from you if you're in Christ and you've trusted Jesus Christ. So that God's help and the nature of his help is real. And it's personal, it's, it's, it's personal, it's intimate. And it's eternal. And he's working with the, the eternal vision he has over your life. And he's working it out. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the promise in this psalm. Thank you for the promise that you will keep us from all evil that you will keep our lives. And we know, Father, that doesn't mean that we'll never be touched by the presence of evil. But we believe that we will never be touched by the purpose of evil, that your purpose prevails, that, it, that circumstances and events can never get between you and us and your, your eternal purposes for us, in us, and through us. Father, there are those here that have faced trouble on levels that most of us could never even imagine. Father, by your spirit, would you speak the care and the truth and the intimacy of this psalm into their souls? And there are some here right now who are right in the midst of trouble. And we pray boldly that they would feel and know your real help, Father, your personal, intimate help, your eternal help, that they would not just know your presence, but that they would know, see, and believe that your face, Father, is turned towards them. And Father, thank you that we can be assured of all of this because you turned away from your son, Jesus Christ. And now in Christ, you turn towards us in love and in grace and in forgiveness. Fathers, we continue to worship. Would you remind us would you awaken our hearts to the truth that you are a mighty fortress, that you are our God, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.